Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachimim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for your Shabbat. We thank you for this opportunity you've given us to worship in your presence, to experience your Shekhinah, your divine glory in our midst. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that you will open up our heart to receive from you, that you will open up our minds to understand your voice as it comes forth from your word. Lord, I pray that you use me as a vessel for your purposes, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you've ordained for this reason and that you will speak clearly as we open your word today. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. So this week we're in Parsha Miketz. We're continuing the narrative of uh, Joseph uh, and uh, everything that we, he went, went through. We're continuing our journey in watching the nation of Israel become a nation, as it was a family that ultimately goes into Egypt and a nation of uh, a million and a half, give or take, plus those of the nations that added themselves in uh, to serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, left Egypt uh, uh, and uh, after slavery. And so as we're looking at this, we're, there's a lot going on in this part. I mean, it's a pretty streamlined narrative. We don't have a lot of bouncing around like we had with last week with randomly Judah and Tamar and a couple other things. It's a pretty streamlined Parsha in, in terms of relaying this narrative but I think that there's a, a big overarching image that comes out of here that I think is absolutely pertinent and absolutely necessary for us as believers today to wrap our heads around and to understand. Um, I mentioned last week that Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the Bible primarily because there are countless messianic foreshadowings, countless individuals in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, that foreshadowed uh, Messiah. All of them played either the foreshadowing of Mashiach ben Yosef, the suffering servant, or Mashiach ben David, the victorious king. Joseph is the only character in the scriptures that portrays both the first coming and the second coming of Messiah, both Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, both the, the suffering servant and the victorious king. As we watch uh, Joseph's journey, we realize that there's a lot of things about Joseph and Yeshua that correlate. Uh, and I mean, ultimately, there's probably hundreds of things. If we really uh, dig down into the nitty gritty, there's probably hundreds of, of little tidbits and points between Joseph's life and Yeshua's life that really stand out uh, as being correlations of the two. But here's a list of, of a few things that I think are really uh, uh, vitally important for us to see this foreshadowing idea of Joseph's role and what God is trying to show us in the midst of this. So Joseph and Yeshua both, both were loved by their father. Both were called brothers out. Uh, both called their brothers out on errors. Uh, Joseph was was you know, kind of the tattler, the family tattler. He went and ratted out his his brothers to his dad, and Yeshua was the one saying, "Hey, you know, you guys are a brood of vipers. You guys are messing things up pretty royally, flipping tables in the temple, and so on." Uh, both knew that they were destined for greatness. Both saw the hatred in their brothers' eyes. For Joseph, it was literally the other sons of Jacob. For Yeshua, it is the.
See, I was really tempted to change those out before I actually started to speak. And I thought, nah, we can make it. But uh, Yeshua, uh, for, for Joseph, it was his actual brothers, physical brothers, the sons of, of Jacob. For Yeshua, it was the rest of Israel. It was the Jewish people as a whole. Um, both were mocked and ridiculed by their brothers. Both were sold off by Yehuda, by Judah. Uh, Joseph, literally, it was Judah that said, hey, let's not kill him because there's nothing to profit from it. Let's take and sell him uh, as a slave and we can get something from it. And for Yeshua, it was the kingdom of Judah that sold him off. Both were punished at the behest of lies. And by the way, not just the kingdom of Judah, but if you actually look at the Hebrew for Judas's name, you know, we say Judas in, in English from the Greek, but his actual name in Hebrew is Yehuda, Judah, right? So physically by Yehuda, by Judah as well. Both were punished at the behest of lies. Uh, Joseph sent to, to prison because of lies, and, uh, and Yeshua sent to the stake because of lies. Both were quiet, even to the slaughter. Both were awaiting their full glory to be revealed. Both longed for nothing but to help others. Both rose to the occasion. Both were cast away by their own brothers. Both were handed over to Gentiles. Both provided salvation for Israel and the nations. Each one's suffering leads to the eventual rulership over the whole world, the eventual eternal messianic throne that we're all awaiting. And so as we look at this, we see so many different correlations that bring us to seeing the, the image of Yeshua in the life of Joseph and what it is that this really amounts to. If you have your scriptures, open up to Genesis 41, beginning with verse 37. This is right after Joseph has, uh, has uh, or I'm sorry, Pharaoh has had his vision, his dreams of the cows and the, the sheaves of, of grain. Joseph comes in and tells them what it means. Uh, finally, after the, 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 the baker goes, oh yeah, hey, there's this dude that could probably come and, and help you out with this, but he, uh, he comes out and he shares the, the, the dream and what it means to Pharaoh and then says, now here's what you got to do. This is talking about you're going to have seven really good years and seven years of famine, so you're going to have to take all of the, the, the produce and the, the, the production that's made over the course of the seven years that are good and save it up so that we have something to live off of for the seven years that are bad, for the seven years of famine, and you need to put somebody in charge of it who's going to look over it all. So verse 37 is where we pick up at in the story. It says, now the plan seemed good in the eyes of Pharaoh as well as all of his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can a man like this be found, one in whom uh, is God's spirit? And the, the wording here in Hebrew is, the, is Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God. Uh, can, one, can a man like this be found, one in whom is Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You, you will be over my house and all my people will pay homage to you. Only in relation to the throne will I be greater than you. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I appoint you over the whole land. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in, with fine linen garments and put a chain of gold around his neck. Then he, made, he, then he had him ride in the chariot a second in command, the one that belonged to him, and they called out before him, kneel down. So he appointed him over the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one will lift up his hand or his foot in the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zephanath, Paniah, uh, and gave him uh, Asenath, daughter of uh, Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. Then Joseph went out in charge of the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old. 
when he began serving as representative of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and passed throughout the whole land of Egypt. Another correlation, in case you didn't catch on to that, how old was Joseph when he began uh, his, his authority role? He was 30. How old was Yeshua when he began his ministry, which was ultimately him taking on that kingship authority of Israel? Uh, he was 30 years old. And so we see these correlations that continue to pop up. But here we see that Pharaoh uh, elevates Joseph to this, this uh, authority role. In essence, Joseph takes on, for all intents and purposes, the power, the authority, the rulership of Pharaoh. The only difference between Pharaoh and Joseph is that Pharaoh actually gets to sit on the throne and Joseph doesn't. But Pharaoh even says no one in the kingdom, which includes himself, will be able to lift a hand or a foot without Joseph's approval. Joseph is, for all intents and purposes, greater in the nation of Egypt than Pharaoh is. So we see Joseph go into the suffering servant role as he's sold by his brothers into slavery, and he goes into uh, Potiphar's household as a slave, and then is sold or cast into prison because of lies, and he suffers for all this time in prison, separated from his family, separated from uh, the, the reality of the world around him, the, the world that's outside of the cage that he's trapped in. Uh, he finds himself in this place where all he can think about is the dreams that he's once had and the reality of where he finds himself at versus where he thinks those dreams are supposed to be taking him. And he's constantly at this battle, I think, in prison trying to, to find uh, justification of what's going on. But I think the beauty about Joseph is we never once see him complain. In the midst of all of this, we never once see him argue with God or throw a fit about it as we do with uh, some of the other characters throughout Scripture. But here he rises to this Mashiach bin David, this victorious king role, if you would, over Egypt, not just to save the Egyptians, but to save what would become the nation of Israel and the whole known world. He's put into this place of authority over Egypt. Then as we move forward, we go to verse, uh, to chapter 42, verse 1. Chapter, two, uh, chapter 42, verse 1 says, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. This is after the seven years of good and the seven years of bad. So Jacob said to his sons, Why are you looking at each other? Then he said, Look, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some grain for us there so that we'll live and not die. So Joseph's brothers went down, ten of them, to buy grain from Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob did not sin, for he said an accident might happen to him. The sons of Israel went to buy grain among the others who were coming because the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the provider of grain for all the people of the earth. Then Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he made himself unrecognizable to them. Then he spoke harshly and said to them, where have you come from? From the land of Canaan, they said, to buy grain as food. Though Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed about them. He said to them, you, you're spies. You've come to see the undef undefended places in the land. And he begins to attack them, uh, which is ultimately, as we watch this narrative play out, it's just a test. He wants to see where his brother's heart are now versus what it was uh, before he was sold into slavery. But here I think it's really interesting that as his brothers come, uh, they've been separated from him from a, for, for a number of years at this point. And so Joseph uh, sees them walk in the door. Instantly Joseph recognized them, but Joseph was wearing the garbs of an Egyptian, right? 
I'll, I'll save you the headache of, of singing the lyrics, but now it's in your head, so you can sing them to yourself later. Um, so he looks like an Egyptian. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He's speaking in Egyptian. He's not speaking in, in Hebrew as they would. Um, he's totally revamped himself to appear as the, the people whom he is a part of. And so as all of this is going on, his brothers look at him and they don't see who it is, but he recognizes right out the gate who they are. And he begins to test them. He begins to test the waters to see exactly where their heart is and, and whether they've changed from what they were before. And we skip to verse 15. Verse 15, this is after everything else uh, has, has uh, gone on. They went through this whole thing back and forth with, uh, with Joseph, verse 15. But this you'll be te- by this you'll be tested by the life of Pharaoh, You'll not leave from here until your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among, you, from among yourselves to get your brother while you remain confined in order to test your words, to see whether the truth is with you. If not, by the life of Pharaoh, you're definitely spies. So he put them together in custody for three days. Kind of feel like uh, just putting myself in Joseph's feet. He was really putting him in jail just for little kicks and giggles. You know, he was like, hey, this is what happened. You get a little taste of what I had. You're only going to do it for three days, but you're going to feel what I went through. So he puts him to jail for three days. Uh, Then Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and you will live because I fear God. If you're honest, let one of your brothers remain as a prisoner in the guardhouse where you've been while you go and bring grain to the hungry in your homes and your youngest brother bring to me so that your words can be verified and you won't die. So they did. Then each man said to his brother, we we're truly guilty for our brother We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us for mercy, but we didn't listen. That's why this distress has come to us. Reuben answered them and said, didn't I tell you, don't sin against the boy, but you didn't listen. Now see how his blood is now being accounted for. Verse 23, they they did not know that Joseph was listening since there was an interpreter between them. Joseph was speaking Egyptian. They were speaking Hebrew. There was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. When he turned back to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon uh, from them and tied him up before their eyes. Joseph begins to weep because he starts to realize the pain and the anguish in their hearts. He starts to realize that not only do they recognize the guilt of the actions that they did against him, but he recognizes the potential of restoration uh, with his brothers and especially with Benjamin. So he sends them away. They go home and, and they tell Jacob everything that happened, everything that was going on. and said, now we can't go back again to get anything else to eat unless... Uh, Benjamin goes with them, and Jacob says there's not a chance that's ever going to happen. Ultimately, Judah puts his life on the line for him, and, uh, and, and uh, Benjamin's allowed to go, and we see everything that transpires there. But I, I want to focus, and I want to hone in on just on this idea of the brothers uh, uh, of Joseph not recognizing Joseph, right? Joseph, as I said, is this foreshadowing of Messiah. And so the brothers of Joseph do not recognize Joseph because he's been made to look different. He's been made to appear different. He's been made to speak different, to act different. Uh, And so although he recognizes them, they don't recognize him. And I think this is a very powerful reality in the, 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 the world that we find ourselves in today. Because when we look at the overarching body of Messiah, I think this is a, va- a, a real image of what we've done to the image of Messiah. This is a real reminder of what we've done to the image of Messiah. So Yeshua says he came for who? the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? We recognize that the the gift of salvation, the the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, the gift of the covenant relationship with Adonai that is a part of Israel was extended through Messiah to the nations. 
But Yeshua says, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Brecha the Shah, the new, new covenant says, uh, in particular Romans, Paul says that the, the gospel goes to the Jew first and also to the nations. And what we realize, and, and this is likely going to be a message that's going to step on a lot of toes that are listening to this uh, online and, and maybe even in-house, I don't know. Um, but when we, listen, when we look at this, what we realize is that we find ourselves in a similar situation to Joseph's brothers. We find ourselves as the body of Messiah, right? This is the bride of Messiah. This is supposed to be part of Israel. Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah, part of Israel, the spiritual commonwealth of Israel. And yet when the Jewish world sees us, they see something completely contrary to the Jewish Messiah. See, we've taken Yeshua. Remember, Joseph is a foreshadowing of Yeshua. We've taken Yeshua and we've dressed him up in clothing the Gentiles would wear. He's a Jewish man. He's a descendant of Judah. He's a descendant of Jacob. He's a descendant of Abraham. But we dress him up to look like this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Gentile. And, and then we take him and we, we take what is supposed to be the faith of the followers of this Jewish Messiah. We make it look something completely contrary to Judaism. Completely contrary to anything that in all honesty, if Yeshua was among us today in human form as he was in the first century, I don't, I don't know that he would recognize his bride. And we've taken them and we've changed them around so much and we've twisted things up and we've added things in and we've removed things out of the, the message of Messiah. We've removed things out of the, the way that we worship, out of the, the way that we follow his word and live by his word in such a way that we've changed the image of Messiah so that he doesn't look Jewish anymore, but he looks like something completely different. And I say we because although we are uh, uh, the Messianic Jewish movement, although we are part of the Messianic Jewish community, although we are part of the Jewish world and the Jewish community, we are believers in Yeshua, which means we are also part of the rest of the body of Messiah. And although we are not a church, the reality is the history of the church is our history too, just as the history of the Jewish people is our history too. And somewhere around the, the latter parts of the second, moving into the third century, the body of Messiah had, uh, had grown to a, in such a way that there was an overwhelming amount of, of Gentiles in the body of Messiah, and those that were Jewish believers had already been kind of cut off from the, 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 the rest of the body of Messiah, the Gentile part of the body of Messiah. They had also been kind of cut off from the rest of the Jewish world and were kind of left flailing in the wind on their own. And as that occurred, what we know is the church today began to develop. And I believe in all, in all heartfelt honesty, I absolutely believe without a shadow of a doubt that the church as a whole believes fervently that Yeshua is our salvation. I have no doubt in my mind that the, the, the church is saved and they have done phenomenal things in leading people to the Lord, including Jewish people. Most of my predecessors in the Messianic Jewish movement, most of the rabbis that I've studied under, learned under, listened under, uh, been trained under, became believers in churches. All right, so the church, don't get me wrong, this isn't to say that the church doesn't have a place in the body of Messiah, I believe they do. I don't believe it was God's intention or his will for there to be a Messianic Jewish body and a Gentile Christian body. Uh, I believe that he wants a body, his bride, one in Messiah, Jew and Gentile united. What that looks like and if that is going to happen before Mashiach returns is a whole different discussion. But I believe that we don't serve a God of disunity, we serve a God of unity, right? 
And so if there's disunity, it's because we allow the enemy to weave his way in and disunity and division is his greatest tool in the world. So he begins by dividing the the body of Messiah, separating the Jewish believers from the non-Jewish believers and the non-Jewish side of the body of Messiah begins to change the Jewish Messiah to be a little less Jewish, to change what should be a Messianic Jewish faith to something that's a little less Jewish. And we begin to add things in and mix things up and change things around so much so that the Jewish world today looks at the body of Messiah and they don't see a Jewish Messiah. And they definitely don't see something that looks like Judaism. But yet they hear a bunch of people who say that they follow the Jewish Messiah. But they've cut off everything that is Jewish from their midst. They see a body of Messiah that has allowed for anti-Semitism to be so vocal and so prevalent in the history of the church, that the Holocaust occurred under the auspices of Christianity, that the pogroms in Eastern Europe occurred under the auspices of Christianity, that the Crusades where Jewish people were slaughtered on the way down to, uh, to, to rescue Jerusalem from the Muslims, uh, all these Jewish villages were slaughtered on the way, was done under the auspices of Christianity, and countless atrocities beyond that, Spanish Inquisition, expulsion from England twice, etc., 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 all these things that occur. Many, many neo-Nazi-minded people believe themselves to be believers. They believe themselves to be doing the work of God because the Jews killed Christ and we got to kill the Jews. Lo and behold, if you actually read the Gospels, it wasn't us that killed them. We couldn't. Israel was part of the Roman Empire and we didn't have capital punishment authority. We had to hand them over to the Gentiles. And what's interesting there is it just goes to show that in order for Messiah to die for our sins, it took both Jew and Gentile to create the problem that he had to fix. But instead, we start pointing fingers. And so the body of Messiah is now, in the 21st century, for the most part, something that Jewish people would never recognize as being Jewish, would never recognize as something that maybe this is where salvation comes from, from this Yeshua, from this Jesus character that we read about. We've taken Yeshua just like Egypt took Joseph, and we've changed him into something completely contrary. We changed him to something that his own brothers, who granted in the first century weren't necessarily his biggest fans, just as Joseph's brothers prior to him be sitting on the throne in Egypt weren't really his biggest fans. We've changed him into something so contradictory to Judaism that the ones through whom salvation comes first don't even recognize their Messiah. They stand before him just as Joseph's brother stood before him in the throne room and they can't see who he is and they don't recognize him. Yet he sees them and he knows who they are and he's longing for the restoration of their heart. He's longing for them to to reach their arms out and say, Yeshua, we love you. We're sorry for everything we did. We're sorry for how we despised our relationship with you. We're sorry for how we hated you. We're sorry for where we put you through. We're sorry that we were the ones that caused you to be hung on the stake. We're sorry that it was for our actions that you had to die to provide restoration and redemption. We go to Romans 11. Romans 11, verse 1, this is Paul speaking. He says, I say then God has not rejected his people, the nation of Israel, has he? May it ever be, for I too am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he knew beforehand. Or do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Adonai, they have killed your prophets, they have destroyed your altars, I alone am left, 
and they are seeking my life too. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in the same way also, at this present time, there has come to be a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but the elect obtained and the rest of the world and the rest were hardened. And we go to verse 11. I say then, they, Israel, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their false steps, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To provoke Israel to jealousy. To provoke Israel to jealousy for what? For their own God. But unfortunately, the Jewish world looks at the church today and they don't see anything that provokes them to jealousy for their own God because they see something so different from anything that they would have ever imagined the Jewish Messiah being a part of. Now, verse 12, now if their transgression leads to riches for the world and their loss riches for Gentiles, then how much more their fullness? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles insofar as I am an emissary to the Gentiles. I spotlight my ministry if somehow I might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection leads to the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? When Joseph, in next week's Parsha, finally reveals himself to his brothers and weeping tears completely shifts everything and stops speaking in Egyptian and starts speaking in Hebrew and reveals himself as their long-lost brother Joseph who they sold into slavery and they cry out, forgive us, how could we ever do this? We're afraid you're going to kill us. I'm paraphrasing with their thoughts. How we're, we're afraid you're going to kill us. Joseph said, listen, don't you worry. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to do anything against you. I don't have any, any uh, hard feelings towards you at all because I recognize, and I hope that one day you'll recognize too, that it wasn't you that put me here, but it was God, so that I could be used by him to bring salvation not only to you, but to the nations as well. And when we, as God's creation, cry out to Yeshua in repentance and scream out, Messiah, I'm so sorry that I put you on that cross. I'm so sorry that it was my sins, the sins of my people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the sins of the nations as a whole, the sins of the world overall that put Yeshua on that cross. Yeshua cries out, it's all right. You didn't do this to me. I did this for you. I sacrificed my life for you to find salvation. And as much as we've allowed the enemy to work his quagmire mess in the mix of the body of Messiah, bringing division upon division upon division upon division, allowing for this, this disunity and this, this rigmarole mess that we find ourselves in today to have occurred, the reality is that ultimately the Lord wants the body of Messiah to recognize that he isn't this random Egyptian authority sitting on a throne but he is a son of Judah, a son of Jacob, a son of Isaac, a son of Abraham. He is the promised Jewish Messiah who came to bring salvation to the lost sheep of the house of Israel so that they could bring the salvation Yeshua to the nations, so that the nations could, as Paul says, drive the Jews to jealousy. For what? For their own God. But for the most part, the body of Messiah, we've created all kinds of theological weirdness all sorts of doctrine and, 
and theory that ultimately de-Judaizes, create a term, de-Judaizes the reality of the message of Messiah. And look, I say all of this, and, and I said early on, this is going to step on toes, and, and it's not my intention, but I want you to understand, I don't say any of this for the sake of trying to, uh, to attack anything else in the body of Messiah. Not in the least. As a matter of fact, I love every part of the body of Messiah. I go out of my way to build relationships with pastors and churches in our area because in the same sense that I go out of my way to be a part of the Jewish community in the area, I also recognize that I'm a part of the Jewish community. I'm also a part of the Christian community. And I want to be in unity with my brothers and Messiah no matter what. So I go out of my way to build relationships with pastors and churches in the area so that if the Lord opens up opportunity, we can together be in unity to see the lost sheep of the house of Israel come to salvation because Paul says in Romans 11, what will happen when that occurs? It'll be life from the dead. What happened when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers? It was literally life from the dead. His brothers thought he was dead. Not only did they not recognize him as the one sitting before them on the throne, but they thought he was long dead and gone. They were constantly beating themselves up mentally, thinking that everything they were suffering at this point in time, which in reality was Joseph providing greater blessing they could ever imagine, sends them away with more food than they thought they were going to need, sends them away with their own money again, doesn't take anything from them. Sure, he kind of messes with their heads a little bit and does some psychological uh, mumbo-jumbo on them and throws them in jail for a couple of days and holds one back and all of this. But the reality is, is he's being huge, a huge blessing to them. And when he finally reveals himself to them, and they're finally restored in relationship, it literally brings life from the dead, not just for the brothers of Israel, not just for the brothers, sorry, of Joseph, but for Israel, for Jacob himself, when he comes down to Egypt and he finally sees in his old age his long-lost son who he thought was dead, restored to his embrace, restored to relationship with him, and recognizes, and, and I truly think last week we see that as Joseph shares his, his dreams uh, that the Lord gave him, shares his dreams with his brothers, his dad gets upset and says, who do you think you are saying you're going to lord all this over us and we're going to bow down to you? But it says that after he gets on to him, that Jacob never let it leave the back of his mind. And I imagine when Jacob finally went down to Egypt and stood in front of Joseph for the first time and recognized that they literally were all bowing before him, that those dreams started to roll in Jacob's head again. Those dreams started to go and he started to think, man, this is crazy. It's crazy to see what the Lord has done. And I say all of that because in all honesty, I think what the Lord is doing today in the body of Messiah, as we look at the restoration of the modern Messianic Jewish movement, which is a revival of the first century body of Messiah, when we look at the restoration of the modern Messianic Jewish movement, when we look at how many churches there are the world over that are starting to get a hunger for the Jewish roots of the faith, that are starting to get a hunger and going, hey, maybe there's something to this uh, Passover thing. Maybe there's something to these feasts and festivals. Maybe there's something to this, this Shabbat thing. Maybe there's something to Yeshua having been a Jew that we need to, we need to understand, we need to, we need to work through, we need to figure out here. As we start to see the Lord bringing restoration and unity in these relationships and what he's doing, what we're starting to see is that that veil that Messiah didn't put that veil on himself like Joseph did. Joseph dressed himself like an Egyptian. Messiah didn't do that. We put that on him. The body of Messiah changed his presentation. The body of Messiah changed the package he was dressed in. But he's taking all of that off. All of this stuff that we put on him, that we thrust on him, he's pulling it all off. 
And he's revealing himself to the Jewish people. He's revealing himself again to the, the body of Messiah as a whole, as the promised Jewish Messiah, through whom the lost sheep of the house of Israel will find salvation, through whom there will be life from the dead for the body of Messiah as a whole when that occurs. It started to strike me, this question. If we, the body of Messiah, have changed the appearance of Yeshua so that his brothers, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, do not, cannot recognize him. But what's even more so frightening in the midst of all of this is that we've actually changed the body of Messiah. We haven't just changed the appearance of Yeshua, but we've changed the body of Messiah so much that I'm curious if Messiah walked among us as he did in the first century today, would he recognize his bride? And I think that's an important thing for a question for us to process. Because although the brothers of Joseph didn't recognize Joseph, Joseph did recognize them. There's nothing about them changed other than their heart. The problem is, is that as believers in Messiah, our heart changed. And for the body of Messiah as a, as a whole, the greater body of Messiah, not much other than the hearts changed. We didn't become a part of the commonwealth of Israel. We told the commonwealth of Israel, you can either become a part of us or you can get out of our way. We didn't take on the reality of who the Jewish Messiah was. We said the Jewish Messiah is ours and he can get rid of all of his Jewish garbage. And I'm curious if Messiah were standing here today in human form as he was in the first century, would he recognize his bride when we've done so much to change our garb to change our appearance, to change our worship, to change how we interact with, respond to, observe, honor, love, revere His Word. The body of Messiah as a whole is chopped off a whole bunch of it because it just gets in the way of the narrative. You know, a lot of pastors will teach on Romans chapter 1 through chapter 8. Maybe chapter 9. Generally, they won't teach on chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. and They'll come back in for the rest of it. You know why? Because Romans 11 and 12 undoes all of the bad theology we've developed off of Paul's writings from Romans 1 through 8. Because Romans 1 through 8 was ultimately trying to get us somewhere to Romans 11 and 12. Which then brings us about to the rest of Romans. I've taken courses in college on Romans where this is exactly what they did. They hacked out Romans 10, 11, 12 because it doesn't fit in the narrative. It doesn't fit in the ideology. It doesn't fit in the doctrine and the theology. But what would it look like if we, the body Messiah, take off the Egyptian robes that we've forced on Messiah and that we've taken on ourselves as the bride of Messiah and we become truly part of the commonwealth of Israel that we've been called to be, that we've been made to be both Jew and non-Jew, united in Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. We become a part of the commonwealth of Israel as God desired. How much more so would that drive the Jewish people to jealousy for their God? How many want to see Mashiach return? How many understand he says he won't until Israel proclaims, Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, in John 11, verse 49, uh, says, 
Uh, he was the Kohen Gadol at this time, says, uh, you know nothing. This is after Yeshua has raised Lazarus from the dead and everybody's flipping out and, and afraid that the Romans are going to kill them. You know nothing. You don't take into account that it is better for you that one man, Yeshua, die for the people rather than for the whole nation to be destroyed by him or for him rather. Now, he did not say this by himself, but as the Kohen Gadol that year, as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Yeshua would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also so that he might gather together into one, that he might gather together into one, not into two, not into a Gentile church in a Messianic Jewish synagogue, that he might gather into one the scattered children of God, not just the children of Israel. Israel was a nation brought forth from the 70 nations so that Messiah could come forth for Israel and the 70 nations. And instead, we've changed him. And it's time that we wake up. It's time that the body of Messiah wakes up to the reality that we have done more harm, even in our good intention, to the message of the the Sora, the gospel, the good news of Yeshua going forth to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, then we've done good. We've done more harm than we've done good. It's time that we wake up and we recognize that he isn't just the Jewish Messiah that the church can take and do what they want with, but he is the Jewish Messiah that came for both the Jewish people and the nations to be made one new man in him. And he is still the Jewish Messiah. And he is still going to return to his place on the eternal throne of David in the eternal city of Jerusalem in the eternal country of Israel. He's not coming back to Great Britain. He's not coming back to Nairobi. He's not coming back to, to Sydney, Australia. He's not coming back to Washington, D.C. Thank God. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem and he's going to change the body of Messiah like we've never imagined. The sad thing is we should be imagining it because what he's going to make us is what we were supposed to be all along. The prophecies say that when he comes back and his eternal throne, or rather his millennial throne is established, that those are the nations that don't come to celebrate Sukkot and it's easy to, to then deduce from there all the rest of the Moedim those that don't celebrate the Moedim are going to experience famine and punishment and plagues, etc., etc., etc. And if he means it for then, who may, what makes us think he doesn't mean it now? It's time that we allow Yeshua to be the Jewish Messiah for the nations as he always intended to be, as is God's plan, not as was God's plan, as is God's plan. So what I want you to leave here with today is the opportunity to ponder your own life as a believer in Messiah, your walk, how you live, how you honor his word, and ask yourselves, would Messiah recognize you as part of his bride? When you interact with other believers and the Lord opens up opportunities to share, the words that you speak forth are they going to be words that encourage the bride to be more recognizable by their bridegroom? Or are they going to be divisiveness? 
causing more division and disunity. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage the body of Messiah as a whole and these what I believe to be latter days to awaken ourselves to the reality of the revival that is available when we return Yeshua to the place that he always is and has been and will be forever, which is as the Jewish Messiah who came first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel so that through the lost sheep of the house of Israel who have now been found and made whole and restored, the nations can come to faith. So that the nations can drive the Jews to jealousy for their God. We are not independent. It is a cyclical reality. My job as a Jewish believer is to be a light to the nations. The nation's jobs as believers in the Jewish Messiah is to drive the Jew to jealousy for his God. We have to work together, one in Messiah. United, not divided. Division is the place of the enemy in our midst. And he has no place among the light of Messiah. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I pray that you will use these words to work a, a work of renewal and restoration among the body of Messiah. Father, not for the sake of uh, of, of fixing problems that we may see not for the sake of condemnation or, or hurt or, or malice or ill intent, but for the sake of seeing your body, your bride made whole, made one. Lord, you cried out that we be made one as you and our Father in heaven are one. You cried out that we be made one so that the world may see you in us and know who sent us. And so, Father, my heart's cry is that that prayer of Yeshua becomes a reality, that we do, in fact, become one so that the world will know who sent us, and even more so, so that Messiah will recognize his bride. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen.